Welcome to the Pubway Podcast. Each episode will showcase a conversation with a leader from the publishing world. If you're working at a publisher, a DSP or SSP, or you're just curious about the media industry and want to sit down and pick the brains of the experts from within the publishing space, then this is the show for you. Hello, and welcome to the Pubway Podcast. My name is Tina Yannikino. And I'm Mike Villalobos. And in today's episode, we're going to be actually ch- uh, talking about change process with an AI. Um, and we're connected with actually a good friend of mine, Rob Applegate from TV. Hey, Tina. Hey, Mike. Nice to uh, chat with you guys again. Likewise. And um, as the current VP of ad operations at 2B, it'd be great to hear a bit more about your career background, just so our listeners have a little more context. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No problem. Yeah. So I, I think my first like stint in ad operations was actually when I was working at Bleacher Report and I started as an inventory analyst there. Uh, slowly worked my way up to um, an ad operations specialist. From there, went over to a company I actually worked with called Virul with Mike, where I kind of got my feet wet on the video side of the ad operations uh, business, specifically on the DSP side. And Mike, I believe, was heading the pub development side on the SSP front. Is that right, Mike? Uh, DSP front. Oh, DSP front. Okay, fair yeah. enough. I apologize. Too, too um, many acronyms. Yeah, I know. Welcome to ad operations. Welcome to media tech in general, right? Yes. Um, and then after that, I went to another company called Empowered, where we had some uh, machine learning type of capabilities that we leveraged to automate toward the lowest cost per engagement, uh, which was actually fairly interesting um, as well. And where can I get my feet wet on the ML and AI side? Um, shortly thereafter, I went back to work with David Goldberg at Tubi, which is where I currently am, um, and uh, he's my SVP of sales operations, and I've gotten promoted to the VP of ad operations at that role also. And then, you know, while I was at Empowered, I also had my own side business, um, leveraging a DSP and also deploying campaigns for a small book of business that um, my old partner and I used to run too. So definitely have a lot of like technical expertise in, in, on that front as well. Love it. And you've been at two before what it's now five, six years now? Almost five years, I think. Yeah, about got makes me feel like a dinosaur in the ad space, not gonna lie. But honestly, the like dog years. So it's yeah, definitely 100%. Uh, <laughs> it's exasperated there. What do you guess my question more is how have you seen the evolution of OTT and CTV space over the last five years? Just being that well, I think when you first went in, it was a pretty nascent um mm-hmm. cord cutting approach. And now everyone's do, everyone's kind of moving towards the app based view of TV and address hole is changing mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, one reason that a lot of viewers kind of like transitioned over from, you know, cable over to the OTT and CTV streaming space was because of, you know, you had to buy these cable subscriptions that were pretty expensive. And while I look like I might do a lot of sports, the reality is I don't play a lot of sports. Like I'm more interested in like BJJ, MMA front side of things, not less so on like the basketball and football side of things, right? So you end up sure. buying these massive cable packages that can run a couple hundred bucks a month in some cases. And, you know, given the state of the economy right now, a lot of people are, you know, that's where the term cord cutters came from, right? They're like, I don't need to buy all of these bundles because um, I can go and get video on demand and, you know, I can pause and play content of my choice. Um, you know, I can save it for later if I need to. I can download it to my smart device and watch it on you know, um, my tablet, laptop, my phone when I'm in flight, and you have a lot more flexibility in terms of like your content viewing options, right? Um, And you're slowly starting to see the same kind of thing actually happen within the CTV and OTT space. So you've certainly seen a lot more like mergers and acquisitions happening. 
Um, you know, Disney, Hulu would be one example. Paramount is another example as well. Um, and yeah, I think you're kind of starting to see what we kind of call the cableization in terms of like the CTV and OTT space as well with a lot of like bundles happening now too. So, um, and, you know, on, on that front too, Mike and Tina, like you're also seeing a lot of, you know, CTV companies starting to call some of that content because it's expensive to host. And given the state of the economy, obviously, like people are starting to also cut back on some of those CTV streaming apps, right? You guys know there's a massive amount of like layoffs happening, especially in the Bay Area, New York City and things like that. So people are trying to tighten their purse strings a bit. And I think that's kind of where Tubi enters the space as a strong competitor is the fact that you don't need to necessarily sign up or register. All of our content is free. And, you know, we've got hundreds of thousands of uh, series and movies that are kind of like a um, kind of you go down there, this like nostalgic rabbit hole, right? If you guys remember watching the Super Bowl, that was kind of the stitch from one of our ads, right? It's like two beasts like this, um, you know, nostalgic rabbit hole that you can go through and, and, and find like nostalgic content. And even still, we have like newer content being released now on, on Tubi as well. So. Yeah, amazing. I mean, for myself, the last time I worked in CTV specifically was five years ago. So I mm -hmm. feel like it has changed drastically. For um, sure. We're like contextual SSAI being like this dream that we had. Years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Like people are still trying to like really crack it, especially blending first party subscriber data with what's actually going on in the stream. But exactly. I would love to know with SSAI in mind, how do you see AI impacting AdOps specifically, whether that's to be directly or kind of just the ecosystem at large? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really fair question. I think, you know, if I put on like my, you know, view this through like the lens of like a content consumer, there's a lot of ways that we can actually sure. leverage AI, right? So, you know, let's pretend that you went out Friday night and, you know, um, you wake up Saturday morning and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so dehydrated. I have a headache. I need something that's going to make me feel a little better, right? So you might go on to like one of your popular like uh, shopping applications, like say Instacart, for instance, right? And say, I don't feel like thinking right now. And you can actually tell Instacart, like I have a headache. I'm super dehydrated, had a rough night. Show me some products that are going to make me feel a little bit better, right? And you might get surface ads for Pedialyte, Liquid IV, Advil, things like that, right? So you're essentially taking human ambiguity and they're making, you know, um, deliberate recommendations on products that you might like. Now you can start, we're starting to do some beta testing on the Tubi side with that same type of functionality, right? And I believe we're using ChatGPT as a plugin for that. So you can say, oh, I just had a rough breakup and I want to watch something that's going to make me feel depressed and make me wonder at the end of that content, like, why did I even watch this movie? And it'll say, it might surface movies like, you know, Dead Poet Society or Requiem for a Dream or something like that, right? And so again, you're taking that human ambiguity and making very deliberate content like recommendations as a result of that. And that's kind of from the consumer side of things, right? From an ad operations perspective, you know, I would say there's, we work with like dozens of supply side partners or demand side platforms. Um, as well as like devices that may have, um, you know, first look rights into our inventory. And one thing that's not always, that, that requires a lot of manual intervention is taking that video and making sure that we are working within, you know, FTC guidelines. Um, as an example, if we get an ad for alcohol, for instance, right? We want to make sure that that alcohol ad does not get served to viewers that are not, you know, roughly of age, Okay. And so historically, we would have like my ad operations team would have to go through each ad manually and say, this is an alcohol ad. You know, it is in English, but it, it's we don't want to target this to youth led content. So they'd have to manually apply the ratings and then deploy the ad on that front. 
Now, if we can take away that manual intervention, take away those clicks, leveraging machine learning and AI, you know, that saves a lot of, um, you know, uh, employee time, right? In order to focus on other things that are also revenue generating, like deploying direct insertion order campaigns. So one thing that we're beta testing on the 2B side is being able to scan that video content and say, oh, this is an ad for alcohol. And we're only going to direct this towards, you know, P you know, PG-13, R, MA, NC-17 content. We can also take that same type of technology and scan each, like, you know, every, I think it's every half a second or so of like the frames of those images and scan them and say, oh, there's a lot of skin showing on this, right? It might be a lingerie ad that we also don't want to serve to kids, right? Because we do want to remain cop compliant as well and direct that to just adult content. And the next step from that would be to analyze the voiceover text and transcribe that. And we might have like a word bank that says, okay, you know, this has words like alcohol, sexy, and stuff like that. And say, that's not appropriate for children either. So let's also direct these ads towards adult content. And, you know, sometimes when these, these ads come through and, you know, Mike, I don't, and Tina, I'm not sure how familiar you are with like the, the programmatic space in terms of video, but you don't always get an advertiser domain um, submit through the, um, for, from the ad response, right? So there's another subset of that where we can control ad domains, right? So if we know that something is coming from .gov, it might be a political ad and we're not going to serve that to kids, um, you know? So things like that, like to automate that workflow, I think are some of the ways that, you know, Tubi is able to start leveraging AI and ML in order to like, again, reduce human, the, the, the mandate for human intervention and um, promote automation. Less of a tax on resource for sure. hundred yeah. percent, exactly. Um, Oh, no, I just I had a more of a curiosity follow up question. Sure. And CTV is cloaking still a common occurrence like it is in more of like traditional desktop and mobile web when ads are intentionally mislabeled and get, can get around some of our AI tools. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always going to be bad actors, right? Anytime you have yeah, an, sure. a, an opportunity to kind of like squeak by and there's, you know, a seller that's able to make money on it, you're for sure going to yeah. get bad actors that are going to like, you know, squeak through the cracks and and, and potentially like, you know try and get that visibility, try and get that payout. Sure. And, um, you know, in that same vein, Tina, we've also seen, you know, there was one programmatic guarantee deal that we were running and it wasn't deploying for whatever reason. And when I logged into the SSP, there's a little like ladle tool that you can leverage. And within that SSP, we have certain like block list categories, right? Where we'll block list a specific yeah. IAB category. And I believe they actually, it was like a health supplement, but for whatever reason, they mislabeled it to like a human sexuality IAB category. And I was like, hey guys, if we just change the IAB category, you're going to start to see de like delivery against this campaign, right? So that's just like one like example. It wasn't necessarily cloaking. It was, a, it was an error on the buyer's side, um, right. but absolutely cloaking still certainly exists. I guess, have you seen any tools or tactics to try to discover that or uncover anybody trying to cloak or just get a pull fast one on you all? You know, um, I wouldn't say necessarily like anything. I haven't seen anything with like malintent on my end. Sure. Um, we've certainly seen, you know, ads come through that might still have like a slate, right? Like, like three, two, one countdown. And then that's what, <laughs> that's not a good user experience. So we're like, we're generally going to like block that creative from running against our inventory. And I'm sure there are third parties out there or companies internally that have tried to build ways to kind of combat that type of um, mislabeling or, you know, stuff like that. Sure. But um, I'm not familiar with anything right out of, off the top of my head, unfortunately. That's fair. Um, I, I guess also the same point, different side, obviously work with tons of publishers and, mm -hmm. and partners on the supply side. Where do you see publishers leveraging AI for their business? Um, sure. Have you seen any innovative ways outside of ad ops with partners that you've worked with 
that kind of really move the needle for them, whether it be monetization or content creation, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, so on the content creation side, there's this whole concept of generative AI, right? Where mm -hmm. you can kind of, you can like basically forego a lot of like writers and actors and start to kind of produce your own content. In fact, there's a lot of technologies out there now where you can basically plug in like a script or a scenario and chat GPT will actually just spit out a script for you, right? And so that kind of like, you know, undermines the need for like writers and actors to a certain degree. And there's a whole host of like ethics that we can dive into later for this podcast. But in terms of the monetization side of things, like the publishers themselves aren't necessarily looking to, they want, they'll make money by ad revenue, right? So that's how we end up paying out our publisher partners is by, um, if an ad's walk, if a viewer is watching that content, then we're going to split the revenue with them with some given percentage, depending on what we've negotiated on the content with our content team and that publisher. Um, and, you know, certainly we have publishers reaching out to our product team saying, hey, we're not seeing the ad revenue that we're expecting. Like, why is that? And part of that is just because viewers might not necessarily be like interested in that content. You know, the other side of that too is if we're able to leverage ML, for instance, to start to prioritize certain users, um, that would be helpful because that they would see a specific revenue boost on that front. So for instance, while Tubi is completely free, you don't always have to register. But if you do register, we have third-party integrations that will tell us your age and your gender. And, you know, we send a bunch of other streaming signals to that third-party provider. And those campaigns, those direct serve campaigns generally come with a higher CPM premium. So if we're able to like categorize and build out a, like an ML model that is able to prioritize those users instead of, you know, a user that's not necessarily registered, like they can see it certainly, uh, they will certainly see an increment in uh, revenue boost on the publisher side for sure. Absolutely. And um, your the former part of your response actually teed up our next question really well. The writer's strike and the actor's strike going on this year is especially important as it relates to media. I think there's a lot of overlap between our concerns with the AI being able to uh, create content mm -hmm. on behalf of humans. Um, I personally, I've been kind of a creator for <laughs> five years on the side. And just because I've been in media for the better part of a decade now, I know in contracts to cross out likeness and in perpetuity because sure. I just happen to have that professional hat on. But there's a ton of creators who don't understand that. And I think those concerns play very firmly into the full strike concerns we have right mm -hmm. now in the larger motion picture industry. So I'd love to hear a bit more about your thoughts on maybe, I don't know, the solutions or how AI could maybe benefit both sides. I think everyone's looking at very negative lens right now. Sure. You know, I'd say like, you know, to give the you know, viewers and or listeners a little bit of context, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, to your point, you know, there's certainly a, a writer's strike uh, occurring. Specifically, you know, if we think of like a boxing ring, right? You've got the WGA or the Writers Guild of America on one side, and then you've got the um, AMPTP or the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers on the other side, right? And really what the writers want are, you know, very high level, three, three bullets, right? They want um, higher wages, they want uh, job security, and they want to kind of restrict how some of these content partners or producers, um, or not producers, excuse me, how these like publishing houses can, can limit um, the use of AI, right? Um, so if you think about like the writer strike right now, it's been about a hundred and a little over 130 days and about 12,000 writers are on strike. And that doesn't seem like a big number in, this, in the ad operation space if you're thinking about impressions and dollars, et cetera, right? But when you think about the number of writers that are typically in a room producing a specific show for a series, usually that max number is about 12 writers, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you take that number of 12,000 writers on strike 
and you divide that by that 12 writers, right? You have a minimum of at least a thousand shows that are at a halt right now because nobody's right. writing. Okay. And, you know, I don't think that you're necessarily going to see that production, the production for those shows necessarily start to resume until either the WGA or the um, AMPTP, and that's such a mouthful to say, um, either <laughs> land a knockout or, you know, come to some kind of a consensus or agreement, right? And yeah. I think to answer your question a little bit more pointedly is like, you were asking, if, what was the question? It was like, how AI... Can AI yeah, it could be more positive, I guess. Right now, it's sure. being viewed as a very negative, but I think right. a common ground might just be in the acceptance of AI from both sides, but still sure. with kind of the, the ethics in mind. Yeah, and you know, to that end, like really, what the writers want to do is like they they see the value in AI. They're not necessarily trying to say we can't leverage AI at all, but we want to create a framework around AI, right? Um, and I think the the framework is like a healthy conversation to to establish between you know both parties in in the field, and you know. Right now, for instance, like the other the other issue that comes to mind too is that the writers just want credit, right? So yeah. if if they're not being if we're leveraging AI instead of instead of like completely in place of writers, like who gets the credit? Not the right. writer. The writer's also not going to get paid. They're also not you know they're also losing their sense of job security. So that kind of goes out the window. Um, you know, right now as it stands, there's a lot of shows that we're going to be used to seeing come out in the fall that are currently delayed. Um, Stranger Things 5, one of my favorite shows, is actually not in production right now due to the writer's strike. And that's kind of a bummer because we're going to have to wait. Like until until a resolution is met within the strike, like we're going to have to wait until we see some of those shows. Another couple of movies that are also delayed right now are um, Deadpool 3 and mm -hmm. Gladiator 2. Two movies that I'm like kind of a big that I really want to like see, like follow through. I'm a big fan of both of those. So, yeah, I think that's kind of like the crux of the issue is like we're not going to see any of this content produced until there's a resolution met within the strike. I think you mentioned something really interesting, which was the compensation piece. Obviously, mm -hmm. it, writing's art and there's a lot of passion behind it, but naturally we have to live our lives and get compensated to pay our bills. Sure. Yes. Do you see writers um, or even editing for that matter, right? Being compensated if they're included in a training set, I think a Shutterstock does something similar, but mm -hmm. if you're a writer or a contributor to a training set, do you see compensation eventually being played into that conversation or do they get forgotten entirely just given the expedite, like how much of being uh, automated and honestly just being put to the waste, the waste? Yeah. I mean, again, I think that's going to go back to a resolution within this strike, right? Like Let's say that the Writers Guild is successful in creating a framework for, you know, leveraging AI, for instance. Like, you know, I, I don't know how that works out in terms of compensation, but I highly suspect, Mike, that if they are allowed to use AI, that you are going to see a reduction in pay for some of those writers, right? And again, like some yeah. of those writers are also looking to increase their rate. They also, I think, Tina, you mentioned they're looking for higher rates in perpetuity on a go-forward basis. Every time there's on cable, every time that there's like a, a, a show is like streamed, for instance, like let's take... The Office, as an example, you know, the writers, the actors, they all get, they all continue to make money. In the streaming space, it's, it's not necessarily the same. They, in fact, get paid a little bit less. And a lot of these companies are also, you know, talking about job security, uh, where the max amount of writers generally allowed in the room, I think it's, again, close to a dozen or so. But in some of these spaces, they're actually only allowed three or four writers, right? And that's kind of where the sense yeah. of, like, job security is coming from as well, so... Um, I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question on that front, but I don't know that we're, I'm not, I'm not a professional in the, you know, sure. as far as like the writers and actors strike is concerned. These are all just content that I'm interested in. So I read a lot about, so I don't necessarily have the answers. Again, it's going to, it's going to need to lead to a resolution for the strike. And I believe 
they just had a meeting. I think it was, I forget if it was like this month or last month. Um, and from the perspective of the writings, Writers Guild of Association, who met with some of the top you know, CEOs from like Netflix, Disney, et cetera, um, they basically got their perspective was that they were basically just being lectured about how great the counter offer from the AMPTP is, right? Um, and so they were kind of left at a standstill. So this, this negotiation for the strike is still under, still going on. And, you know, I recently read that, and, you know, Mike, we've been part of a company that was facing bankruptcy and it ends yeah. up being a waiting <laughs> game. It ends up being a waiting game. And that's kind of what's happening right now is, you know, the AMPTP is kind of just going to start to wait out until some of these writers start going bankrupt, start getting evicted from their apartments and things like that. And so that's another concern too, is it ends up being like the uglier stuff. I mean, it's an entirely ugly situation, but it ends up being totally. like, who has more money in the pockets? Who can wait this game out the more? Yeah. The most. Yeah. Well, as, long, as long as the nanny is still president, I'm happy for. <laughs> um, but to kind of take a step back from that whole topic, because I, I agree it's, it's very topical right now, but we're all not writers or actors, at least much of your side passion. I'm sorry if you're also you're not, not on the side. Nope, I am not, but. I'm yeah, interested in the content since I work in that space, yeah. but, you know. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My youngest brother, actually, um, he went to film school. He's a director and screenwriter, and he moved to Los Angeles this year. And he was like, really great idea to move there this year. Like, oh, <laughs> I know. Like, don't, Timing. Give up. don't give up. He's wanted to do it for his whole life. So I had faith in him. But stepping away from that, but still obviously wanted to keep kind of the AI lens on. Um, back to more of the chibi side of the conversation. Mm -hmm. How have you seen AI help streamline your processes around media strategy, implementation, sure. more of the tactical opportunities? Yeah, totally fair. So, I mean, I've gone through a couple acquisitions at this point in my career um, where we have to start leveraging like an order management system. <laughs> and, you know, my job as the VP of ad operations is to try and take away clicks to get from point A to point B, right? To expedite right. the deployment of campaigns, to expedite that reconciliation of revenue, and when you start layering in an OMS, right, given the amount of permissions necessary within that OMS, you start to see a lot of work redundancy, right? So um, in this instance, you know, it's the account manager has, you know, the permissions to, to, to leverage one module with that order management system. And then ad operations has permissions to leverage only their module in the order management system. So you can't flop back and forth between the two. And that's not just, you know, that's an order management um, systems, you know, preference. And you could automate that. Like I have admin privileges, privileges, so I can bounce back and forth between the two, but it's also a SOX compliance issue also. And it's also a parent company mandate also, right? So there's a lot of like constraints there. So you end up seeing a lot of like duplication of work, especially on the account management side of things. So for instance, they'll take an insertion order and they have to manually input that into the order management system month over month, because that's generally the way we deploy campaigns. Um, and Sometimes it can be in line with the way the client wants the campaign deployed and sometimes not, right? The insertion order might say one thing, but they'll say, hey, actually go ahead and deliver this like with this monthly billing schedule, right? And as long as we have that in writing, that's okay. So to answer your question, uh, what, we, what we're trying to do now is to figure out a way to take an, an insertion order and have an AI bot plug into the order management system and automate the creation of that insertion order as much as possible, right? So naming up the product, um, you know, adding the CPM, adding the impression goal, and obviously the budget. And this way you're taking away a lot of that manual input work from the account manager, right? 
The second part of that account manager's process is to take that same output that they're already putting in the order management system and put that in our campaign tracker, right? And our campaign tracker is where we're basically going to compare first party spend versus third party spend. We're going to look to identify impression discrepancies between the two, spend discrepancies between the two, et cetera, right? So you're effectively more than doubling their work in some cases. So if we can, again, take away that problem, leveraging AI and AI, then that solves a host of issues, right? And the second piece of that would be to theoretically, um, you know, again, this is still kind of in beta testing as well to traffic that campaign, right? Um, and, you know, I've, I've had some conversations with some third parties and sometimes I don't know that always makes sense for Tubi as a business because AI and ML are still in their infancy. You still need right. to be able to tell this ML bot how to traffic that campaign, right? So you'd have to take that third party tag ID, marry that to an AO, the, our order management system IAD, ID specifically, and then fill out a bunch of targeting variables, send that to the AI bot, and then they could, it could traffic it and then like, you know, um, get it ready for deployment. The problem is, again, with my VP of ad operations hat, I've done a lot of work because we use a proprietary ad server to ensure that we can copy supply, like our targeting parameters from one line to another line, right? So that month over month or week over week or day over day cadence to kind of like ease that the, the human input work, the work necessary, right? So that's just like one overarching example of how we can theoretically leverage, you know, AI to um, ease the burden of work on the account management and ad operations side. And at the end of the day, Tina, like you're not taking away jobs from that front because AI is going to make mistakes. You still need somebody to go in there and QA the final work on the AM side, as well as the ad operations side on the trafficking side of things, right? So realistically, what you're looking for is to take away 80% of the problem and focus on that 20%, right? Love that. I think you said it correctly. AI and machine learning aren't taking jobs. They're, if anything, almost creating new functions for a job. It's sure. just, remember back in the day when programmatic first came out, everyone, all the tra everyone's saying programmatic yeah. to take jobs. And then we have programmatic trainers, right? So it created a whole new role. So exactly. it just, it, it'll just, I think, perpetuate into innovation, uh, which mm -hmm. is a good thing. But uh, sometimes a little bit, it's a little bit too doom and gloom when in reality we have so much to look forward to. Uh, I mean, looking, I guess, in the forward lens uh, mm -hmm. and also switching gears here and winding down, um, I'm going I'm to have to ask a more personal question here, but sure. what's the most recent read that you've had or what's on your bookshelf today? Oh man, the most recent read. So I'm reading a book right now called The Sports Gene, which kind of okay. goes into like the nature and nurture of like, you know, the, some of the top world athletes. Um, oh, interesting. That, that, I think that's a really good book. It dives into like the science of it. it it's not just like, oh, like, this mom and dad put this guy into or or lady into like swimming or baseball or basketball. Um, sure. It really comes down to like, you know, are they, does this individual have the, you know, propensity to be six, four and above? Um, yeah. And, you know, were they given the resources in their youth in order to um, develop the skills necessary? And then they even dive down to like a genetic component as well, which is super fascinating. Again, that kind of goes back to the height thing, but like if yeah. you take into account like endurance athletes and stuff like that, there's a lot of reasons why genetically they're more predisposed to like, being able to carry oxygen more efficiently through their body and stuff yeah. like that. And they go through like the whole history of the evolution of that athlete's uh, lineage. But that's kind of like on my, I'm reading that book right now and it's fascinating. That's so. cool. I actually might uh, pick that up myself. Great book. <laughs> yeah, sir. And then I would love to kind of close us off here um, with one more, a bit more personal question. I would love to know kind of the best and worst advice you've ever received. Sure. You know, so I thought about that and, you know, I've been given a lot of advice throughout my career, great advice and bad advice. Um, mm -hmm. 
I think what I'm going to lean on is kind of just like my general, like the, the advice I would give myself throughout the years that I've been in the ad operation space. Um, sure. you know, I think the best advice is to just focus on your team, right? Um, do what you can to take away clicks. Um, you know, specifically like reduce the redundancy of work needed to get from point A to point B. If you can do that and you can foster, you know, a healthy workload and try and foster a collaborative environment, that's going to reduce turnover. It's going to make people generally happier. Um, and, you know, I think that's just a, a really efficient way to build a, any any team, right? Whether it be in the sports world or the professional world in general. Um, and I'd say the worst advice would be, you know, the contrary to that, right? If you aren't focused on your team, if you're not focused on trying to reduce their workload, you're going to see higher rates of turnover. It's going to be more expensive. It's going to reflect poorly on you as a manager. And I'd say that's kind of just like my, that's going to be like my two cents on on that front. So. Oh, I, I subscribed. I am in line with both. So I'm going to take your advice and probably act that on my daily, my daily basis. But Mike, I feel like you uh, already do that on your daily basis. So no, Rob, seriously, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, connecting again. And I can't thank you enough for being on the, uh, the pub way. Of course. And uh, great to meet, meet with you guys again. And I uh, hope to hear from you shortly, uh, Mike. Absolutely. Man. Cheers. Likewise.